<laughs> uh, mm, thank you for that sweet sending covenant. I really appreciate that. And it's, it's a joy that I get to come and share with you today from the gospel, from the book of Romans. It's also a little appropriate too. I don't know if you know this, the book of Romans is actually, you could classify it as a support letter. The apostle Paul is writing to this church in Rome so that they would support his mission in Jerusalem and Spain. So I feel like I'm following the example of the apostle Paul as I stand up here, preach the gospel, and ask you for money. No, I, am, I am very excited to share with you, I consider you my family covenant church, to share with you about community this morning from God's good word. Um, we're, we're talking about community because we are wrapping up a series in search of meaning. And Rob Chifakoya and Bob Myers have been working through the early parts of the book of Romans, and they've been looking at how the things we chase for reasons for our life, for meaning in our life, that these things that we pursue actually find the richer, better fulfillment in the good news of Jesus' finished work. You know, one theme that keeps coming up as we talk about these things is that there are these deep, abiding truths out there to be perceived in nature, in our own consciousness, in our hope, even in our suffering. But often, our ability to receive, to interpret, to understand that truth is, is skewed and broken like a radio antenna that, that isn't working, that isn't picking up the signal. And what should point us, what should be signposts pointing us to God, pointing us to our perfect hope, you know, we misdirect, you know, we, we turn those things towards ourselves or we worship or we, or we, we chase after the signs themselves. And, it, and it's true that in elevating these things, in making too much of them, we, we often end up misusing them. And as often the case when you misuse something, your tendency is to break it. I've got an example for you. My, my three-year-old Wesley has developed recently a love for umbrellas. Now, he loves a lot of the things that umbrellas are meant to do. He loves that they shoot open. He loves that they get big and wide. But he doesn't understand what an umbrella is actually for. He doesn't understand that an umbrella is supposed to keep him from the rain. He thinks it's for, like, parading through the driveway or for building forts out of. It's like, look, I don't have to do the—I just pop it, and then I can hide under it. But that's not what an umbrella is built to do. An umbrella is not built— for that sort of use. And when a three-year-old sits in it because he thinks it's a fort, the umbrella breaks. It's not an umbrella's job. And, and community, our relationships with people, our interactions with others are no different. You, you see, our relationships, our community, this is one of the areas in which our broken receptors, our broken attitudes have the greatest potential to do harm. When we are using people, when we are, when we are misusing people, it hurts. I'm sure all of you can look back to middle school to think of an example of that. <laughs> Just when we see how we've been hurt by other people, it can be hard for us to trust. But what we're gonna talk about this morning is that when our hearts are directed upwards, when our hope isn't rested in other people, that is when our vertical relationship with God is right, it changes our horizontal relationships. 
and our community relationships, the place where we have all experienced hurt and pain, can suddenly become this place of healing and hope. And so to do that, I'm going to jump to the end of Romans. I know we've only gotten through a few chapters so far, but if seminary has taught me one thing, it's if you're behind in your reading, just read the intro and the conclusion. You can catch us, catch Ken on the rest. So I'm going to, I'm going to start us out. It's a long chapter, so I'm going, to, I'm going to work through it as we go, but I'm going to start with uh, Paul's personal greetings here. I warn you, this is a lot of names, so buckle up. All right. I commend you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Ken Cray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need for you because she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom I not only give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apenatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. My beloved Stachus, greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Perses, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Narius, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. It's a lot of names. I'm not sure I pronounced all of them, right? I'm going to be honest. Sometimes you just got to fake it until you make it. And I also apologize that I did not greet you with a holy kiss this morning. Um... So you're asking, why did Pete just read to me that list of greetings? And I want to I go back to something I joked about at the beginning. Paul really is writing this letter as a support letter. He is, re, he, he is not the guy who planted the church in Rome. He is not a guy who's ever visited or preached at the church in Rome. He is writing to Rome to support the church in Jerusalem and to plant a new church in Spain. So all this beautiful rich gospel preaching he does over 16 chapters is in service of a goal. And that goal is not just helping us understand more about grace, resurrection, our, our place, but it serves as an argument as to why this church should be supporting the growth of the worldwide church. And this is important because that ask doesn't cheapen the rest of it. It enriches it. It says, look, the more you understand this, look, I know, church, that you get this, but the more you get how good God is, how unworthy we were, how justly we were going to be punished by a righteous God, but how much he loves us to have sacrificed for us, to have saved us, how much our hope rests in the resurrection of Jesus. The more you get that, the more that you get that there, your hope rests on Jesus alone, that understanding will cause you to embrace a role as a body, your role in the body of Christ and, and your role as a part of that greater body and that you will give of yourself accordingly. 
And so how do we get to there from this list of names? Look, what does this list of greetings tell us? All right. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna break this down for you. I'm gonna use three points, not just because we always use three points, but because we're Trinitarian and we know that three points is right and righteous. <laughs> so first and foremost, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a part of the greater body of believers, whether you like us or not. Two, and we'll get to this as we continue in the chapter, as a member of that body, you actually don't have the right to divide or exclude anyone from that body. And third, as we finish the chapter, we'll see that the reason for that is because this body of believers isn't about me. It's about God and his glory. So let's look at this. Let's look at these names. And as we look at these names, what do we learn? Because, like I said, this isn't Paul's church, but he does seem to know a lot of people who go there. So what do we learn about Paul by the fact that he has all these people he wants to write to? We learn that this woman, Phoebe, is financially supporting him, that he needs her support. Her, she's his patron. That's what that means. It's financial support. It means that he needed Prisca and Aquila to risk their necks for him to save his life. It means that there's someone named Rufus whose mom kind of serves as Paul's mom too, that we have co-workers, fellow laborers, chosen people, kinsmen, brothers, sisters, friends, beloved. We see all kinds of people on this list. We see women. We see men. We see single people. We see couples. We see whole families. We see Jewish names. We see Greek names. We see Roman names. We see African names. We see a church that Paul is deeply involved in that seems to represent the whole world, even though he's never even been there. And you know what? This might be controversial, but I see this Apostle Paul guy needing a lot of people dependent on a lot of people. People he doesn't even attend weekly church with keep, seem to keep this guy going. And it made me think as I was, as I was reading this, you know, what, is, what would my list look like? Like, what, if I had to list this, I, you know, I'm not going to because frankly, there are, there are so many of you here at Covenant that inevitably I would leave someone out and I don't want to do that. But it makes us think, what does our list look like? Do we long to have a long list of people that are deeply tied to our life? Do we want to have all these people we depend on? You know, do we see that as a positive thing? You know, because I think there's a part of us that maybe sees dependence of needing people as a vulnerability, as a weakness. You know, because when you're, when you need someone, you're at their power a little bit, a lot bit. They can hurt us. They can abuse our trust. They can use us. It's not safe to, to need other people. This is, you know, I mentioned middle school earlier. This is the lesson we learn in middle school. When you so desperately want to fit in, you want people to love you, you want people to like you, you realize how much power people have to hurt you. How when you put your trust in someone and they abuse it, how much it stings, how violating it is, how hurtful it is. 
We've learned a fear of dependency. We learn to be afraid to trust people. Here's Paul just brazenly saying, like, hey, I don't, Paul doesn't know. Paul hasn't been there. He doesn't know if the person he's writing to hates one of these people. He doesn't know what he's exposing himself to relationally there just by saying, associate me with these people. You know, I know that, for instance, if you are here and you are not, you know, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this might not seem appealing at all. You might consider yourself a follower of Jesus and say, this doesn't seem appealing at all. I don't want a lot of people to know my business. I know that's true because you've also moved to Doylestown where nice acre lots with privacy fences are very common. But as much as we want to pretend sometime that there's this like individual safe space outside of community, there's this identity we can carve for ourselves, there really isn't. Because even when we're doing well and we're taking care of ourselves and we're feeling safe and secure, what, what are we, where are we seeking that recognition? Who is, where are we seeking that approval of? The Apostle Paul, looking back on his old self, says like, yeah, you guys wanna, you wanna boast about, about yourself. Like, I could boast the most. I was the best at following the law. I was perfect. I did all these things, and I count that stuff as rubbish because I need Jesus. That stuff was killing me. You know, right now we're, we're in a place in our culture and we're told that, that no one gets to define you. You get to choose who you are. You get to be that person you want to be, whatever it is. But at the same time, there's also this message that you need to affirm me for exactly who I am. You need to approve that. You need to see it. You need to agree to it. You need to say yes or you're the monster. We're, we're living in this hard contradiction. Like, I don't need someone to, to tell me who I am. I need everyone to approve who I am. It's tearing us apart. It's ripping us into smaller and smaller pieces. And what, the way that Paul can get to this point where he's saying, yeah, I need all these people. The way he can get from there, perfect follower of the law to, oh, I need lots of people. Is that the entry point to Christianity is this. I need Jesus. There's no side door. I need Jesus. Without Jesus, we're slaves to that contradictory battle within ourselves that's tearing ourselves apart. Without something to save us from outside of ourselves, we are constantly in that war. But this understanding that I've been bought with a price, that Jesus has sacrificed to make me his, that I am not my own, that my right being, my hope, my future rests 100% on Jesus, means that that is the safe and secure identity I have now. And that means that my people, my community, the people who will understand me best, the family that I have, is now his family. I've been adopted in. This is the beautiful truth of adoption in Christ, that we are his adopted sons and daughters, the church. And to get into that, 
the step one of entry into that place is admitting that you're someone who needs. I am in need. To be a Christian is to say, I am not okay alone. I need Jesus. And Jesus says, this is my community. These are my people. But when we enter into that people, we, we're not always happy with uh, the people we've been grouped with. And so that kind of brings us, brings us to, the, to the next part of this um, as we pick up in verse 17. Paul gives a warning to the church. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul's saying, look out for people who want to make the church look like them. Look out for people who want to make the church look all like them. He's saying this to Romans, like, you guys, like, look, look at the people on my list. You're this beautiful, diverse, wonderful church of people from all over that God has gathered together. Don't listen to the people who would split you up. But our old identities die hard. The stuff that we've learned in the world, in the fallen, broken world, dies hard. And you see that we often bring our own appetites, as Paul said, into church. Without thinking, we see churches slowly over time. We've had 2,000 years of experience seeing this happen. Watch churches slowly divide along the fault lines of the places where they are. We see rich churches and poor churches. We see white churches, Korean churches, black churches, Latino churches. We see the city church and the suburban church. And at the heart of some of these things are huge grievances, hurts, anger. But really, most of these divisions, most of the separating and the sorting, comes up almost without thinking. Without conscious decision, like a middle school lunchroom, we just sort ourselves. Nobody tells us. We just kind of go to that place. And sometimes that's more obvious to the outsider than it is to the insider. If you're coming to church for the first time or you're just starting to come, you might say like, yeah, that's obvious. For some of us in the church, we miss this. And you know, as we've gone through this series, uh, Rob and Bob have referenced this classic work by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl was a psychiatrist who was imprisoned during the Holocaust. He was at Auschwitz and Dachau, horrible, nightmarish places. And he turned inward to, his, to his, what he had learned in psychiatry and he tried to examine what allowed men to survive this place. What allowed people to keep on moving? And what I appreciate is he didn't just stop with the people stuck in there. He looked at the guards as well. Because our tendency is to think, oh, what monsters. And he said, yes, sure, a small percentage of them were sadists, were awful men who were allowed to do awful things. But the majority of the guards, this is where I quote, the feelings of the majority of the guards had been dulled by number of years in which, in ever-increasing doses, they had witnessed the brutal methods of the camp. These morally and mentally hardened men at least refused to take active part in sadistic measures, but they did not prevent others from carrying them out. What it looks like to be morally and mentally hardened by the 
fractured, broken world we live in is not that we are actively out there doing awful, classist, racist, you know, things to each other, but that we are silent in the face of them. Look at who Paul's warning here. He's not rebuking the people who are, who are causing these divisions in the church. He says, avoid them. They're not preaching Jesus. They don't follow Jesus. We've got nothing to say to them. But don't be silent in the face of them. Avoid them. Because what happens is, he mentions that they flatter the naive. What happens is like, they're trying to divide and they say, well, they're not like us. We're on the inside. It's like, oh, it feels nice to be on the inside. And that little bit of hardening that happens as we're included and we're included. You know, we end up just choosing things based on preference. You know, we end up places like, well, I like this. It fits me. It's shaped by the broken culture that's around us. And we're not, instead of pushing ourselves, we, we, we accept the flattery and we move into divisions and into camps. And I think this is where we need a little help understanding, especially those Listen, in America, we're reading this in English and we read, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And we think he's talking about you singular. He's talking about me. God is gonna crush Satan under my feet. So I need to find that place where I feel most comfortable with Satan being crushed under my feet. Like, if this is all about me, if the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ rests with me, I need to find a place where I really feel like it's about my peace here. And this is where, shout out to my southern friends, we need some more y'alls in our Bible translation. Pittsburgh, maybe a yins, it pains me to say it. He's going to crush Satan under y'all's feet is the way that should be translated. The grace of Jesus be with y'all, with us. You know, in American church, this is the root of so many of our divisions. We, we, it's that big a deal. You know, in both the problems we've talked about so far, in looking for other people to, to be your identity and using somebody else. Like, if I go to Marco and I'm like, Marco, please tell me who I am. That's not fair to Marco. It's like my son with the umbrella. Like, it's not what, it's, not what he's made to do. And the same thing is if I go, it's like, you guys should all look like me. My barber is Arter. At Edwards Barbershop, he'll cut the part in with a... Both of those things are taking this community and making them about me. That person serves me. You guys should look like me. But here's the thing. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. We're, the church is in us because of who Jesus is, not because of who we are. He's the one who brings us all in. And that's why we need this final point, this final message that Paul has for us, that this is about God's glory. Listen to how he wraps up this book. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made to, known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. It's God who strengthens us. It's Jesus who's preached this good news. What once, what once was known to a few is now open to all. Who says? God says. 
because he's the only one wise enough. He deserves the glory. The doors are open. The church is the church. God sets the boundaries. It's his church. We might see like, oh, that's the Methodist, that's the AME church. God sees one church. We're the ones putting labels on things. We don't get that though. We don't get it because of our selfishness. We still view these things through the lens of me. And I'm gonna offer you one last sort of argument against ourselves. Any of you use the internet? The internet, uh, social media, yeah? Uh, there is a place on the internet called Reddit. And it should be a community of joy and excitement because what it is is a place where you can find people who are excited about the things you are, no matter how weird or bizarre. There's Reddit, what's this bug for people who like identifying weird bugs? There's Ultimate and you know, weird children's TV shows. Anything you love, Reddit has a sub-community for. And so where you used to think, oh, I'm weird because nobody likes what I like, you can find people all over the world who likes what you like beautiful, right? Wrong. <laughs> Reddit is where go, people go to get angry at people who like the same things they like. And on these subreddits, they fracture into smaller and smaller groups of people who hate each other online. It's like watching a pure and awful experiment in the human condition. And it's what the pursuit of community for the sake of ourselves looks like. Eventually, everyone is separate. Everyone is an island to themselves. Everyone, we can't find anyone with whom we agree and would be allowed to be identified with. It's cruel, self-inflicted torture. And yet, in contrast, we have God's kingdom. That's us right now. That's the church. If you're new to this terminology or you knew this, we're it. And he declares it without boundary and exception that anyone can, is welcome in. And you might be looking around this room and being like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I'm good with my small web. But I think, but 1 Peter 2 declares, and I think we need to hear this as we look suspiciously at each other. You all are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what we know. Internet as my witness, left to our own devices, we end up no people. Given enough time on this earth, we end up with no one. But God has gathered us in spite of ourselves, against ourselves. God has gathered us together here. Thank goodness. Thank goodness it is by the power of God and the Holy Spirit because if it weren't, we'd destroy it. We have all the evidence of that. This is good news. This is great news. Where once we were isolating ourselves, now we are welcomed into a family that we can't break because it's not about me. It's about God. I can't break it because it's not about me. You know, we can sometimes get in this like all about God's glory. What is God on some ego trip that it's all about God? One little example here. You ever watched a bunch of kids try and figure out what they want to do with a free afternoon and they can't agree on anything and they're just doing nothing? 
You ever see someone come in and like create an organized game and they all start having a great time? In our selfishness, what we don't realize is that we're horrible at being selfish. We destroy everything that we love. And God is, I am the source of all goodness. Your best good is in me. You know, get down to the, what this means for us, church. Let's get, let, let's uh, wrap this up. I'll pull this together, I know. What does this mean? A big part of what this means is seeing ourselves as the church. Stop saying the church when you mean other people. The church is not a nickname for Bob Myers. He's not Bob the Church Myers, head pastor of Covenant Church. When we say the church, include yourself in it. It's a powerful little experiment. If you're new to faith or you're new to this experience, I'll, I'll tell you, it's like, I, I love being a part of it. It's like, it's, you can start right now. You can start right now. When you say, the church should do, pause, stop, and try this one. We should start doing this. You might even go all the way. This is a time a singular might even be good. I should be doing this. You may have just found that part of the church that you were passionate about being in, about serving in, about loving in. It means that the cost of the cost of sacrificing the rubbish that is our selfishness is being involved in each other's lives. The cost of being gathered together by God is having stake in the lives of the people in this room and, and them having stake in your life. See, here's the problem. Some of us just want to like, I want to be a father to people in the church. You're also called to be a son and a brother. I want to be a, I just want to be a, a daughter in the church. I just want to be learning and growing. It's like, there are times where someone needs you to be a mother or a big sister. And right now, I know there are people in this room, looking around this room, thinking of the most extreme example of like, well, I can't let crazy Joe into my life. That dude's crazy. We always go to the most extreme examples, don't we, when we want to get out of something. We find the most extreme example to break a case, but I'm, I'm going to go right with you. Let's look at your relationship with Crazy Joe. Examine the truth of the gospel. You needed exactly as much Jesus dying, slowly being beaten, stabbed, suffocating to death on the cross to save you from the stuff that you did as crazy Joe did. Don't come into this place, this community, and say, I need less than that person. Remember, that's step one. I need Jesus. And so being a part of the church says, let's be done with the cheap relationship that has no stake. You know, Sarah and I think about moving to Richmond, I think about the relationships that had cost because those are the relationships that were of meaning. 
I think of the small groups we spent time in, weeks, you know, week by week meeting the same night. Shout out to my volunteers from student ministries who've given two nights of their week to students for years. But guess what? Those relationships have meaning and they matter because it wasn't about, well, am I, uh, my time, is it, am I protect? It's, it was about God. It was about, it matters that I love this person because I was loved this way and better by Jesus. You know, I think about the relationships we have a church have. I think about our, our taking teams to London or backpacks down to Camden in South Philly, our relationships with Ernie Grant, our relationships with Doug Logan. These relationships aren't cheap. It wasn't cheap to bring Rob Chifakoyo. It wasn't cheap to invest in Don Bashava. These things matter, though. These things have significance. The cost, well, for the cost, I'll, I'll really end, I'll truly end here with the words of Jesus. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus redefined what our best good is. Our attempts at self-fulfillment and selfishness lead to loneliness and destruction. But God has presented us a path that in our selfishness looks like death, looks like giving everything up. But in reality, is life and community unlike anything we could have ever imagined for ourselves. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are so good. You have loved us so well. Lord, I pray that as we come to you, knowing in our hearts that we have not loved like you have loved us, that you would remind us that of your good grace, of your mercy, that we are a people defined by the fact that we have received your mercy and love, and that you would teach us what it means to reach out to each other, to be a community that reaches a community, to be your love in the place where you have placed us. Lord, I pray that we would grow in a deeper understanding of that as we grow in a deeper understanding of what you have done for us. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.